0: One of the lines from the book, more or less, is selfies are usually about as purposeful in value as chocolate mirrors or ice cream teapots, right? (laughs) It's like this idea of selfies. They don't add value, right? Not really. So about 16, 17 years ago, I was coaching sales leaders and trying to help them get more from their team and work with their teams. And I I just reach them for learning and being creative. I asked this, this manager, define value for me. And it was their answer that kind of caught my attention because they struggled. They kind of and I wasn't making them right or wrong. They said something and I would say, well, what else is it? Is that all of it without making them right or wrong? And they kept scrambling to find and not quite feeling they had the definition. And that sent me down this journey of going, that's interesting. I'm going to keep asking this. And I've asked dozens, then hundreds of people, and then in businesses, and the same thing happened.
1: Welcome to the Get Invested podcast, where we share great conversations with experts from all walks of life to uncover their secret know-how and where they invest their time, skills and their money, and the benefits that this has created. You see, the truth is that everyone invests, every minute of every day, we're investing our time, our skills, our energy, and our money in something. Some of us are investing consciously, some unconsciously, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, sometimes for no impact. Get Invested will help you to start living by design, not by default. I'm going to help you to make it happen, not let it happen. You will hear the top tips on how you can live with conscious intent so that you can live more, work less, and leave a living legacy by investing now. Listen to the show to discover the top tips on how to get started, make the most of your investment journey, and ultimately to be living your dream, not someone else's. More episodes can be found on iTunes or at bushymartin.com.au forward slash get invested. Thanks for listening, and now let's get invested. Hi Freedom Fighters! What is value? How do you define value? Well, my guess is that you're going to struggle to define this. Why? Because the term value has become so overused, yet misunderstood. Just think about how often we use and hear the word value in our everyday lives. We're constantly asked, what are our values? What's your value proposition? How are you adding value? We constantly hear about shareholder value, the value of a firm, fair value, fair value, market value. About value creation as another name for wealth creation. So again, what is value and how do you define it? Now various dictionaries define value as the regard that something is held to deserve the importance, worth, or usefulness of something, one's judgment of what's important in life, values defined as relative worth, utility, or importance, the worth, usefulness, or importance in comparison with something else, the monetary worth of something, and value is the monetary, material, or assessed worth of an asset, good, or service. Generally, value has been taken to mean moral ideas, general conceptions or orientations towards the world or sometimes simply interests, attitudes, preferences, needs, sentiments and dispositions. A value is defined as a shared area about how something is ranked in terms of desirability, worth or goodness. But do these definitions really capture the meaning of value in the real world? And how is value measured? Is it merely price or monetary value? Or is it what someone is just prepared to pay? Or is there more to it? Let's look at a great example of value that I've borrowed from today's guest. So imagine I'm holding an old, worn, second-hand teddy bear. Now the bear is a little over 100 years old. The bear's had six previous owners. The bear's got movable arms and movable legs. And the thing I love most about the bear is that when you tip him upside down and then straighten him up, he growls. So based on this simple description, how valuable do you think the bear is? What value would you put on him? Now, I'm going to describe the bear a second time. But in order to tell you about the bear, we're going to forget about Mr Bear for a minute. Because I want to start by telling you about Marguerite. You see, Marguerite was born in Gingin in Germany way back in 1847, and when she was just 18 months old, she suffered a high fever which left her legs paralysed and severe pain in her right arm. Not a great start to life, but Marguerite had a zest and a purpose and a passion, so she fought to live normally. Her brothers and sisters would take her to school in a wheelbarrow cart, and she was actually carried into the classroom. By the age of 15, she learned how to sew, and by the age of 17, she became a good seamstress. And not long after that, she discovered these pincushions in the shape of elephants. And she had this remarkable and ingenious idea of creating cuddly children's toys. So she made 2,000 of them, and then took them to Leipzig in Germany, and they sold like absolute hotcakes. Now at the same time that this was going on in Germany, over in the United States, the sitting president was on a hunting trip. and He was asked to shoot a bear that was tethered to a tree. And he lowered his rifle and he said, that's just not humane. And this earned President Theodore Roosevelt the nickname Teddy Bear. And so the name Teddy Bear also found itself attached to these amazing cuddly toys coming out of Germany. You see, Marguerite's last name was Stife. and Stiff bears are the original teddy bears. They're like teddy bear royalty, the aristocracy of the cuddly world. They come with unique identifying symbols and buttons in their ear, and some of them even have birth certificates so that you know what their providence is. Marguerite ended up building a company as solid and concrete as her toys were soft and cuddly. And the reason the bear I described initially is a little over 100 years old is because it's one of the earliest 1909 staff models. The reason it's only had six previous owners is because you can only get it through auction or diligence of research through a private sale. The reason it's got movable arms and movable legs is because Marguerite gave her toys this gift that she didn't have. And the reason it growls is a nice symbol of the animal's freedom cry. So now let me ask you the question again. What value would you now put on the teddy bear? Is it higher than when I've asked you the first time? Chances are that you now think that teddy has much higher value. Why? Because your perspective has changed your perception of the value of the teddy is increased because of the power of the emotional story that's now attached to him. In this way, value is perceived and it's personal. It's about perception and our perception can change. So value can change. So despite what many economists, statisticians, financial analysts and politicians would have us believe, value's not always rational and it's not always measured in money. But this is where the understanding and appreciation of value gets interesting, because we become almost fixated on equating value in monetary numerical terms. And Rory Sutherland's insights on what is value are very informative in this regard, so let's borrow some of them. He suggests that we've developed a kind of obsession with numerology that finds it absolutely impossible to justify or explain or promulgate any opinion or view or approach All value of anything, unless it has numerical backing. Over the years, as scientific approaches have increasingly dominated every field of endeavour, there seems to have grown an assumption that nothing that is unaccompanied by a spreadsheet can have any validity or true value at all. Consequently, Sutherland suggests that we've inadvertently developed a kind of Stockholm Syndrome where we've all been so beaten up by the purely rational thinking of scientists, economists and politicians, that we've started to take on the worst qualities of our abusers. Now, as an example of the difference between the reality of value versus the rational, intellectual and scientific numeric approach, let's have a look at a game of television's deal or no deal show. And no, I don't watch it. I'd rather watch paint dry, but I digress. See, so scientists, economists, and financial analysts, analysts getting tongue-tied here seem to assume that everyone will always choose the rational optimal outcome, weighing up the probabilities of chance and statistics. In fact, it seems like virtually everybody in the world of finance would assume that this is how everyone weighs up value, and would regard the actual behaviour of real contestants as of contestants (laughs) as fundamentally irrational and wrong. The hyper-rational player of deal or no deal automatically assumes that $20,000 is worth twice the value of $10,000. But all the evidence of human hedonics indicates that this isn't true because money actually has diminishing marginal utility in that a $20,000 car is not twice as good as a $10,000 car. And in fact, the way people actually play their game of deal or no deal is almost looking at values in an emotional logarithmic way rather than a proportionate way, which is probably vastly more in keeping with our relationship between money and happiness than the absolutely linear relationship suggested by those in the world of finance. In this way, a contestant settling for a reasonable chance of 10 grand is perceived by most as better value than taking the risk on an outside chance of twenty grand, It may not be rational, but it's sensible, and it flies in the face of the linear approach to value. The rational, linear, numeric approach to value also completely fails to account for our feelings of regret. The pain of long-term regret that you experience if you've had one chance in your entire life to go on the game show, where you're offered the chance of winning $100,000, and you say no and you only walk away with a hundred bucks, and then you spend the next 30 years of your life feeling like an idiot. And hence, most of us would think that it's worth taking a certain degree of loss to insure against that contingency. So it's clear that the assumptions around the totally rational and linear approach to value are completely at odds with human nature and actual behavior. Now the really interesting thing about all numbers as the absolute measure of value is that numbers dangerously suggest to the statistically less astute that all things must have some sort of linear relationship, whereas actually, in reality, the odds are anything involving human psychology means they're not. And this logical, rational, linear reduction of value to numbers throughout the financial, economic and political sectors has created a mechanistic mindset and culture that disdains ambiguity and compromise. Which results in an outlook where the ambiguity of life is deeply uncomfortable to these absolutist viewpoints. And it drives a kind of mechanistic reductionist view of life that is very uncomfortable with fluffiness, fuzziness, or imposition. And relevant to our discussion here, the famed philosopher Karl Popper once remarked that most things in life sit on a spectrum between clouds and clocks, between meteorology and perfect clockwork engineering. And he claimed that most of the worst mistakes that are made in life are when we try to treat things that are like clouds as though they were clocks. And the variable nature of value is looking much more like a cloud than a clock. And in stark contrast to the current obsession with reducing value to numerical measures is the work of Ludwig van Mises, and the Austrian School of Economics, who were disdained by other economists because they refused to use mass, as they believe that numbers are an entirely inadequate representation of human value and preference. And since economics is all about human value and preference, it's completely wrong to use numbers in economics, so they use thought experiments instead. So, von Mises made the assertion that human preferences and perceptions of value are ordinal, not scalar. It's completely wrong to depict human preference in numerical terms. Another interesting historical figure who demands that numbers be treated with some scepticism is British economist Charles Goodhart, who's attributed with what has become known as Goodhart's Law, which states that any numerical metric that becomes a target loses its value as a metric, Or in other words, the second something becomes specifically pursued, its value as a useful metric has disappeared. Let's share a couple of examples of the manipulative absurdities that result when a numeric value becomes a performance target. Now, if you can remember what it's like to fly, airline punctuality is a case in point. If you've ever noticed that your plane occasionally pushes back from the departure gate, and then you just go for a taxiing ride around the airport for 25 minutes. That's probably because airline departure times are often measured from the time the plane pushes back from the departure gate. Similarly, railway companies in some countries will cancel trains for the simple reason that a train that doesn't run can't actually be late. So you can see that once you actually take a value metric and make it a target, its value, its informational value, is more or less completely destroyed. Now Einstein supposedly had above his desk a sign that said, not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. And this is an important point when it comes to value, because here's the trap. If you find yourself obsessing about something simply because they present themselves easily in numerical form, when actually to the consumer or to the human being they're not very important at all, then you can be missing out in what is really valuable. Again, train punctuality is a good example of this. In many countries around the world, trains running on time are pursued with absolute linear obsession to the point where it's meaningless to the average train passenger. If you're four minutes late getting into the city centre and that upsets your whole day, well, quite frankly, that's not the train company's problem. That's your problem. Yet trains running on time is pursued to a point of absolute absurdity, whereas far more important value measures, like how enjoyable and pleasant is your journey, and is there a table, because they don't submit to the same regular generation of numerical stats, those important items of true value get completely neglected. Now, for me, the whole point of rail travel. Is that there's a table. That's why you have trains because it's the only form of transport where you can actually read, work, type on your laptop, and treat it like an office. So the idea that all the effort and money is being spent making the train arrive two minutes earlier, while at the same time they're ripping out the tables, is exactly the kind of problem that occurs when atrocious metrics lead to a massive destruction of real value. The other problem is that people tend to look at numbers with an assumption of linear proportionality. But an awful lot of human behaviour and perceived emotional value isn't proportionate at all. And the flow on from this is that if you obsess about numbers and you obsess about clocks, not clouds, what you tend to assume erroneously is you obsess about the idea that proportionate inputs are required to achieve the same relative increase in value. But this is not always the case as small interventions can often result in massive increases in perceived value. The other thing that can affect and change the perceived value of something are the framing effects. And video conferencing is a great example. Prior to the pandemic, video conferencing had largely failed due to the comparative framing effects. Video conferencing was always positioned as the poor person's travel rather than the rich person's phone call. The cheap cost-saving meeting alternative to travelling was a logical positioning of video conferencing's value, but it was interpreted as a form of business interaction for people who can't be trusted to get on a plane. It was value positioning, was a bit like comparing margarine to butter, a kind of inferior substitute when you couldn't afford the real thing. So we don't really trust you, Bushy, to fly to Sydney because you'd only raid the mini bar and get inebriated in the airport club lounge. So you just go down to the basement office, and enjoy a very pixelated stop-start, freeze-frame conversation with your potential client for 25 minutes. That's a framing effect. But paradigm shifts in thinking about what is valuable can also quickly change perceived value, as we've seen with COVID. And the inability to travel because of health issues means that suddenly overnight, Video conferencing, through providers like Zoom, has now become the preferred way to communicate. It's got much higher value. So if you're concerned about creating and delivering value, you need to be spectacularly alert to anything involving human psychology, as the frame of reference can very suddenly change. So if you're looking at all your numbers and you're making a lot of money, and then suddenly the value paradigm shifts the balance, the balance sheet's not going to tell you this so you absolutely need a really good understanding of changing human values. Let's take the example of McDonald's. Effectively, everybody assumed for many years that diners' concept of value focused on choice. You had eggs in six ways, over easy, sunny side up, you name it. And you could make substitutions of one kind of sausage for another kind of sausage. But then McDonald's came along and said, no, it's not about choice. It's about speed. So they cut the menu down to six items, and they prepared them so fast that there was no delay. So when we're contemplating what is valuable, we need to constantly bear in mind that in every business, the paradigms and the units of measure of value by which people make comparisons are actually subject to very rapid and unpredictable change. So actually, understanding what is the current measure of value, as well as what it what it might be, is a is vital to sustainable success. And we need to remember that if we're purely looking at the health of our business in numeric and financial terms, then we're missing a huge area of where both value resides and might be created, or indeed, might be destroyed. Another good example of the difference between numeric measures and actual perceived value is the TV show Top Gear. And though he's been vilified as a bit of a larrikin, I can't help but enjoy Jeremy Clarkson's wit. What Clarkson used to do when he reviewed virtually every car was to make the valuable point that the numerical metrics representing a car are very good or very bad, but his emotional reaction to the vehicle may be entirely different. So he'd say this car is slower, it's worse at accelerating, it's worse at cornering, it's actually more expensive to buy. But I prefer it. And equally he did the same thing the other way around. This car is cheaper, it's faster, but I can't stand it. What he did is actually reinforce a very valuable point that quite a lot of what humans value, which reinforces the approach of Bonnesis, can't be explained perfectly in numerical terms. There isn't a metric for a perfect car. There isn't a metric for beauty. Things that we value are actually difficult to define, but absolutely vital to our appreciation of anything. So it's clear that value is a multifaceted, varied and continuously changing entity that's difficult to find, but crucial in every facet of our lives if we're going to make our way in the world. And the best person to help us understand and appreciate value is today's guest, Mark Carter. Mark is an expert in human behaviour and value creation. And because of this, He's become one of the most sought-after speakers and professional trainers in Australia, particularly in the spheres of leadership, sales and many other areas. For Mark, it's all about understanding people, understanding how they behave, think and make choices, both professionally and personally. It's this understanding that has seen Mark hold senior and strategic leadership development roles for major global players across the Asia-Pacific and Europe and led him to work on projects where he designed and implemented strategies and bespoke methodologies for billion-dollar teams across the globe. Over 20 years, Mark has moved from connecting with people in Europe to connecting with people in their own lives, all as a guest speaker and a trainer. Mark has pulled together many of these experiences and learnings into his second book, Add Value, as well as his online academy, which you can find more about at markcarter.com. Dot com.au. And Mark has added so much value on our deep dive conversation that I've decided to split it into two parts. So on the first part of our high value chat today, Mark talks about why investing in creativity is important, why the question what if is fundamental to your success, what has your energy got to do with Venice. We talk about the science of motivation and the three motivational styles and six key categories. We look at what is meant by face the mirror and much more. If you'd like to discover your values, find your worth and gain fulfilment in your personal and professional life, then do yourself a favour and grab yourself a copy of Mark's latest book, Add Value. Just jump on www.addvalue.markcarter.com.au, or click the link in the show notes. And if you're ready to find out how investment can support your growth goals and create the life you are meant to live. Come and join me on our unique know how property freedom flight program where I'll personally guide you through my proven process for property investment success. To book, to book your ticket or to find out more, just click the link in the show notes at knowhowproperty.com.au forward slash freedom fighters or just visit knowhowproperty.com.au. And before we get into today's great chat I want you to remember Einstein's immortal words try not to become a man of success but a man of value look around at how people want to get more out of life than what they put in because a personal value will give more than they receive and this is definitely true of today's guests. So get invested in this great chat with Mark Carter. Welcome back, Freedom Fighters. Now, value is a word that's bandied around willy-nilly to the point where it's become almost overused and very misunderstood. We've all heard it. You need to add value. What's your value proposition? But what does value really mean? And why is it important to you to invest in creating value in everything you do and everyone you react with. To help us really understand the benefit of value-adding and and how to actually do it, we're privileged to be joined by the go-to guru in all things value, Mark Carter. So welcome, and let's get invested, Mark. Hey, great to be on, Bushy. Thanks so much. Awesome, mate. Now, uh, for those who haven't been around, and they'd have to be living under a rock not to know who you are, Mark, given how active you've been in the space for decades now. Uh, But for those that haven't, can you start off by giving us a bit of a rundown on who you are, what you do, and most importantly, why you do what you do, Mark?
0: Yeah, sure. I I often joke I was born in England, raised in Scotland, fermented in Europe and through several round world trips living out of cases. And then Australia has been home for almost two decades. Quite simply, mangroves don't grow in Edinburgh, right? So (laughs) as a professional, I've worked in the field of learning. I'm a learning and development professional, and I have been for almost a quarter century now, 24 years, specializing in human behavior. I've headed up learning for some big companies, and then as a speaker Author and director of my own learning academy now for 16, 17 years or so. Um, you know, I, I contribute quite a bit to mainstream media, which, as you said, people might see me there. authored two books and done a TEDx talk on the very subject you introduced beautifully, which is this concept of value and even our values. And I guess what, what I then do is I take that knowledge and I work with individuals and businesses to create continual pathways of continual development. So with businesses around themes like culture, leadership, sales, efficiencies, for individuals, it's around pathways of personal and professional success. And I think the, the question you said, why do I do it most importantly, is I was lucky enough, somebody else found my path for me, an old boss of mine, saw my potential and made me a training manager for Kentucky back in europe and i said yes at the time because it sounded fun and i knew i'd get to play in a game against the florentines in, in <laughs> soccer and she she reached my arm and said no you're going to do this role because you belong to people and that was my first role in training and development and here i am 24 years later still in my field so why do i do it because i genuinely love what I do. I found my path and I, I, you know, I just keep walking that pathway. That's why I do it.
1: Yeah. love. Interesting that someone else saw on you, what you hadn't realized at that point, Matt, before we sort of go back into your, uh, history, uh, just expand on that a little bit. What, what do you think she saw and, uh, how did she come at that? And then when did the penny drop for you?
0: Yeah, sure. I th- I'd already worked. I, at that time, I'd worked for Kentucky for five years, the first three being on site as a site rep, and then two years on the road. And then so being asked to train the next leaders coming in was something often that you'd be on the road a bit longer because it's quite a meaty role. In fact, I can comfortably say now in 24 years as a learning development professional, I'm yet to face a gig as complex or as complicated as that one. I just didn't realize it back then. Yeah. So I think what Joe saw in me was what she'd seen. She'd been my boss for three years on sites and then kind of going onto the road. And she just knew me well. And she, To this day, she's still the only person I actually refer to as boss, right? So okay. it says a lot already. Yeah. And I think what she saw was my ability, what I now understand, I think, is my ability to be with people, to spend time with people, to look for the best in people to try and encourage the best out of them and potentially my energy in doing that. You know, it's something I get, I get comments about often whenever I do a keynote gig is where'd you get your energy from? Or where'd you get your enthusiasm from? And I share a story to that. I said, my answer is Venice. And there's a reason why, but simplified you choose it. And I think she saw that in me before I appreciated it myself, but you got to think this is like I was 26 at the time, yeah, you right. know, so now I get it. Now I really get myself well, and I think that's what she saw.
1: Yeah, love it, love it. Well, we're going to come back to that story on Venice during your journey, mate, because you've got, <laughs> yes. got my curiosity intrigued <laughs> right there. And having been to Venice a couple of times, it's a, a, a very interesting place, mate. Uh, so, uh, but before we get, get to the Venice part of the journey, what I wouldn't mind you doing uh, for myself and the listeners is to wind it way back as far as you'd like to go and talk us through where you've invested your time, your energy and your money over your life journey so far and focusing on the, the good times and the bad times, what you've learned from them and how did that shape you and, and get you to where you are today?
0: Yeah, I, I think if I go really right back, I would say it's actually been a continual path anyway because where I've invested my time, energy and money has always been around two things and that's my own growth and creative energy or creativity. And even back in school, so I had a pretty, you know, I moved to Scotland from England, so I was kind of bullied quite a bit. I found my path in things that other people maybe didn't include things like drama and writing and the creative things, which back then wasn't really cheered as much. Yeah. But I always loved them, and I think that's something that has stayed with me. I continually have invested my time in creative projects. And the reason I say this is it's quite important to pick up because what I've also learnt is that A lot of people will sacrifice that because creative inputs don't always deliver results straight away. And even with businesses that I work with, sometimes they sacrifice investing time into creativity because it doesn't give a win immediately. And so I can see that for myself, I've definitely continually invested in my creative thinking, my creative projects, even if it doesn't seem to be fruitful initially, it's going to lead to something, even if it's just learning. And that's—I think—it's something that's really been critical for my entire life on duration. Um, I think if I go back to like school and studies, I was always a fast student and a fast learner. I was probably lazier than I could have been in my <laughs> studies. Um, you know, if I'm being honest with myself uh, at school, if I'd studied harder, I could have got better grades. I had decent enough grades, I could have gone to university. But again, I grew up in Scotland in the mid 80s. The economic climate wasn't that great. Yeah. And I probably sacrificed some of that continual learning in through, through um, like educational systems and academic systems because I didn't necessarily see that at the time that was going to add to um, uh, success immediately.
1: Uh, I think I've, given your I've, energy, it probably would have bored you senseless too, I would have thought, mate.
0: Well, you know what? It's, it's funny. I think it might have. What I found though was later in life, and I flagged this again, it's funny because later in life, there's been definitely times, not so much now, but when I was in my field for five, six, seven years, and particularly when I became a speaker to start with, there was definitely some people in the business arena that still expected to see a university degree for credibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, as you, I'm sure you're aware, that's changed massively now, right? In the yeah. last 10 years, the last decade, that's massively changed. I land on a really healthy balance, and that is that um, there is absolute credibility in vocational education and training and academic training as much as there is in entrepreneurial thinking and in innovative groundbreaking stuff. And this is an important one, I think, for the times we live in because I think a lot of people, particularly coming through are learning and look at entrepreneurs that don't go to uni and they want to accelerate their learning. And you go, well, you can accelerate it, but you can't cut it short and don't write off. I mean, all things being equal, if you've got somebody that's done four years, invested, they're smart, invest their time through a degree and they continue learning through entrepreneurial thinking, that is going to be better potentially than just courses by yourself alone so I think there's this healthy balance that I've landed on for myself so I regularly do courses that are quite academic I regularly stretch myself and learning but it was something that at the time when I was at school I didn't necessarily fully appreciate I've got a different perspective of it now obviously that's what life does for you
1: yeah I, I think uh, you make a really interesting point there because I mean I've, I've been to uni and I, I, I love learning I'm not just you know the day I don't learn is the day they'll put me in a box I think Mark but um but what, I, what I've found around particularly academic learning actually, can actually quash creativity yeah, and channel thinking and put your thinking into boxes that, that stop you asking why. And what I love about what you've done is, you know, that there's no greater teacher than life. And if you've got the energy you have and the ability to c- – because you're running fast particularly early I I could see you being someone who really used to bounce around you'd be absorbing and uh, like a a living sponge so you'd be picking up stuff uh, that fuel that creativity that's inherent in you that would have probably been potentially extinguished or at least lessened if you had uh, jumped into a more traditional academic type uh, pathway yeah your thoughts on that
0: I, I agree with that, actually. I think there's definitely, and, and this is something as well, even academia has changed a lot significantly. Even the learning style, you think the old style of being lectured at in classrooms, that's so far gone now. Like yeah. uh, the learnings that you get in academic systems, beautifully so, are now more experiential more interactive. So those systems, they're slow moving systems, but they've adapted too. And I think that's why now for where we're at uh, right now, I think if you find the right institution with a course that genuinely interests you, there's value in academic thinking, but it doesn't have to be that as standalone. Absolutely. I agree that there's times that academic thinking can squash our creativity. I've I never experienced that firsthand. I, if I go back, you know, there's been times where people may not have engaged me back in the day early because I didn't have the degree, and I think now that's their loss because yeah. I think the value I would have brought through fresh thinking was exactly what they were looking for, but because they were hung up on the degree, yeah. they, they they missed out on that. But it didn't quash my own path in keeping up with that, like just being creative and going learning. I mean, example I'm, I'm doing right now, I'm learning French. Now, that's academic. It's following a, a curated courseware system. It's academic thinking, but learning a language, it just – blows your brain wide open in so many other ways yeah. and simultaneously that i'm doing all these creative projects i think they go hand in hand it's just finding a balance for yourself that you feel fits and not allowing that to squash your energy or your creativity love it
1: mate i'm uh, going to talk to you uh, after the show about where you're learning french because i've got that on my hit list this year mate uh, so um <laughs> i love the french language it's the most beautiful poetic uh, it's gonna sound crass when it comes out of my mouth but uh, when, I hear, <laughs> when the you hear the french talk i'm I'm in love when they open their mouth mate yeah so, uh, there's something's pretty special about the French language <laughs> but uh, I digress mate uh, so uh, back on back on the journey then so yeah uh, you left school obviously uh talk us through where where that went to and the, the learnings uh up and up until Kentucky and then beyond
0: yeah sure i mean that's pretty quickly surmised in some ways i left school started working at age 16 right which is really young i went into banking i did two years in banking uh which was good i even started doing kind of banking qualifications but i got bored and what i do i moved yeah. into insurance and i stayed there for about two years and then guess what? I got bored. Bored. And And then I moved down to London. So then I'm looking at 20, got on 21 when I moved to London and moved into my first role in sales and media and advertising. And that was good. It was a good change. I mean, that was flying the coop, right? Going out by yourself to some degree. And again, I did that for two and a half years or so. And it was at that point a family friend had actually introduced me to uh, Contiki as a, as a company. I'd never heard of them you know, in Scotland. Like, who are these yeah. people? And in Australia back then, everybody knew of them. In Scotland, I'm like, no idea. <laughs> and actually, I'll share this is a fun story, actually. Years later, when I was then an operational supervisor and I was a training manager and operational supervisor, I was in the office and I don't know how it came about, but one of my friends actually had managed to track down the notes from my initial interview. To get really? a job <laughs> yeah 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 right. said, i don't know if i've even shared this this is the first actually What's and on? they shared it but i was laughing because the notes i couldn't agree more the notes said it was like not verbatim but it was along the lines of great guy really great energy hasn't got a clue what we do <laughs> 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 and, and you know when i think back i go yeah you're right it was like you know it's it's just travel living and working overseas cool but i didn't really get the gist of the whole model that Kintiki is not like us, australians and kiwis do you know and so i got that job landed it and then here's the, i guess this is where my life changed significantly and i didn't necessarily again appreciate at the time but i mean i stayed there for 10 years i was with contiki for 10 years which is a massive stint mm. uh, when you look at that industry and you look at those oh. sorts of goals. Uh, and then to be their training manager i ran training for four years consecutively which again, back then was, you know, it was, you know, people might do one or two, but certainly not four. So that, that career change, call it what you like. And it wasn't even a career. It was a lifestyle change and choice to do something, get out of the UK and go and explore. Really. That's what it was. And to be frank, that's probably what it remained as for 10 years. I was absorbing. I love the words you use there, and that is I absolutely do absorb things. I absorb experiences. I make point of observing that and not equating that to a monetary value. This is a big learning as well, and I've battled this myself because take my, my eldest brother. I've got two brothers. Yeah. My eldest brother is very successful in financial institutions, director of every major bank you can think of in the UK at some point or another for uh, business lending, like super yeah. smart, and that's all he's done.
1: Yeah.
0: And I had this conversation because when I look at – fiscal well-being and smartness. He's my kind of one of the, those people in my world. And then I look at mine where I've been the opposite. <laughs> I've been really lapsed And he made a point to me a long time ago that really helped me, which was, and he said, Mark, you've got to understand if you didn't live the life you did, you wouldn't be who you are now. And that is so true. And I couldn't, he, he really helped articulate that for me is that we all have our own journeys to live. And I think my fiscal well-being will come later in life. But if I hadn't done the life I had lived as a nomad, getting those experiences, I wouldn't be as good as what I do now because I bring those experiences to everything I do and it's what sets me apart as a point of difference. Exactly. Without them, I'd be the same as everybody else. So it's not about living my life the same. Does that make sense?
1: Uh, 100% makes makes sense. And I think uh, uh, getting paid to explore the world and – you know, experience a constantly changing lifestyle and and also uh, mixing closely with a bunch of strangers effectively who are crammed together for anywhere between a week and a month traveling around on a bus or a boat in uh, in the Europe would would be an absolute uh, oxy welder in terms of learning about uh, human Behavior and human oh. psychology, I would have thought, Mark.
0: You know what? Actually, we use it, my agents use it in my intro as well. I often say, and I say it affectionately the Kentucky tours, it was like a 13 meter long petri dish experiment in human, human behavior. <laughs> Right, And you, so you take – I'm now accredited in a whole load of recognized behavioral tools and sciences and stuff. And when I went and learned them because I did those learnings after leaving Kentucky, but it was like being plugged into the matrix because all it gave me was a language and framework around things I'd identified for myself because exactly. I had to. I'm like, oh, that's what you call it. Oh, that's what you call it. But I'd already built models and way to train people or, or experience with customers around that stuff. And so it was a great experience. But I I have to say this as well. You know, when you go on these sorts of journeys, it wasn't – you're paid, but you're not really paid. Mate, we get paid something like $20 a day to look after 50 people 24 hours. Good grief. Right? And it was – back then, certainly, I mean, things have changed over years. But back then, it was very much about the lifestyle and the experiences. And it certainly wasn't – You know, necessarily a a career at that point. You could lead to that. You stay in it and you lead to it. There's ways to do that. But in the early days, the first couple of years, it's not a fiscal thing. That's not why you do it.
1: No. You went to
0: get experiences.
1: uh, And there's no better experiences than travel. And and Europe's a fantastic place to do it, given that, you know, there's a, a whole melting pot of very different cultures in very close proximity, uh, uh, mate. And then you throw in people from all over the world in that bus you're talking about uh, who are all strangers and, and going through their own, own challenges. Uh, tell us yes. some of the stories. I'd, I'd love to share some of the good and bad stories, mate, because there must have been some crackers that came out of that Oh, time.
0: man, I got so many, right? I mean, because then you do tour the whole of Europe, Eastern Europe. I'll tell you this. I love this one. The, the one year, somebody in marketing in Kentucky and it was going back to 96, it would be, a 96, 97 – Somebody in marketing decided, let's create a new tour and let's call it a Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, like the <laughs> Queen song. And we do it through Bohemia, right? And so they went out, they packaged this tour together, they put it in the brochure and they sold it. Great. But the thing is, nobody had actually driven it. Now, we knew those cities, but nobody had driven it in that order and we're doing it in reverse order. And so they gave me the first one to do. And this is back in the day, I literally had to do all the logistics for that tour on a live tour. I've got 35 <laughs> or so paying passengers and I'm doing all the directions. I'm faxing them back to London. I'm trying to create excursions to give extra activities people can do. And so I'm literally, and it's, it sounds ridiculous, but it's things like, okay, we're going to traverse through a country. Do we need to pay a tax going through there? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> do we need, do we need to pay tolls? I don't know. We've never driven through that way before. Where's the, where, where do we fuel? Where do we take a bathroom stop? I've got no idea. We're going to figure that out, I guess. You know? and, this
1: and, is, and this is back in the days before GPS, before Google. This is, this is out with the street directories and yeah, exactly. um, talking to people to work it out.
0: Exactly. But I've got to share this bit with you. So I, I created this excursion. I thought, oh, some fun stuff. And I, I knew we could do a dinner cruise in Budapest but i had no idea how much we were to sell it for whatever and, and my boss would give me a green light just be a reasonable package so i sold this dinner cruise on the danube river in budapest for some of the, I don't know, some something like 20, 22, 23 US dollars at a time. Yeah. But my negotiation skills were magnificent. I negotiated this much better rate. And I kid you not, at the end, we went to pay the provider. And I've got this wad, like two wads of local currency, foreigns, in my hand. And we felt bad. I said to my driver, let's just take the group out. So we went to this <laughs> nightclub. And I just put two wads of money on the counter. And I said, this is my group. Rope us off. Tell us when that's spent. Now, you, we had a coach-free day the next day, so that's why we could. My driver had the day off. Anyway, the following day, we go to leave Hungary. We go in a different exit way, and I only have to pay a tax to leave through that border. and I'd spent all my Hungarian <laughs> money I had to cash up an American dollars travel check, and this is why a classic example of going to market too soon, right, without all the, the details. <laughs> you know, it was a great experience, though. It was a great experience, though. And yeah. I think on that tour, the one thing – that I was annoyed at myself about that tour was we got lost, which is a, is a cardinal sin. You bleed time. And the one day we got kind of lost, not badly, but 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so, I knew we'd taken the wrong road on the way to Auschwitz. But Auschwitz concentration camp was a major draw for that. You know, it's such yeah. a, a, a place to go. It's a really yeah um somber so told, place but important yeah. one yeah you know yeah. to go to we bled a bit of time that day so you know but my tour was very forgiving they got it it was good so that you know it's things like that would happen all the time i could share so many stories ex- stories or experiences but that's always a classic that springs to mind
1: well i mean you, I, I, i'm guessing here that the, the whole experience would have taught you to be able to think on your feet pivot and switch and change direction on a dime Uh, And and that's under a a fair bit of pressure and a fair bit of expectation, actually. So I'd imagine that ability to think very quickly and be very enterprising uh, at the drop of a hat would be skills that would have carried uh, right through to what you're doing today.
0: I, I incorporate and build this sort of stuff into all the frameworks I build, like my sales models, my operational efficiency, leadership models, you know, and, and it's a great point when, when we're training the leaders back for Kentucky, you know, and there's other people doing those roles as well. But for me, I would say the most important thing for me to really train and develop them in was one question. What if? Because you're going to plan, you're going to learn your logistics, you're going to know how to plan and prepare, you're going to learn to deliver polished city tours, and you're going to learn the price of everything and maps from know your way around Europe like a champion, you're going to deliver history talks and all this stuff. But what if? What if your coach breaks down and you're stuck on a roadside for 13 hours longer? What if you get passengers run over by traffic in a local city or you know, worse? What if? what if, what if, because it's the what ifs you can't prepare for. And that is a, that absolutely is one of the most powerful lessons that that position, that life style, and then training others taught me was the what if being able to adapt, being able to think on your feet, being able to problem solve, being able to stay calm when things are burning all around you, you know, that what if was one of those most powerful lessons, I think back then as well.
1: Yeah, I love that, and it's it's interesting you you to talk about in that context because in our in, in the way we help uh, investors because uh, our specialization is in the property arena, uh, w- we do the what ifs right up and and early, and it's always plan for the best and then expect that's no, pl- plan for the worst and then expect the best, and then th- you know you're going to be okay because yes. we have considered all the what ifs, uh, which means you've got a contingency or a plan of attack when they do occur. And then you don't need to worry because everything's going to be under control. And at the peace of mind that comes from doing those what-ifs uh, can, can make a big difference to how you're enjoying the moment. So, uh, yeah, I love that, mate. That, uh, well, And that gives me the perfect segue to return back to that little, uh, little teaser you gave us about Venice. <laughs> Into discussion, mate. I'm not going to let you get away with that one. Talk to talk us, talk us about Venice.
0: Yeah, I, sh- I share this keynote actually because it's as I said, one of the questions I get a couple of questions regularly after, especially keynote stage presentations. One is, where do I get my energy from? To which my answer is Venice. And here's the, the story of that. You know, Venice was one of those cities. It's an amazing place. It shouldn't exist. It does. A tribe, Veneti tribe, built their houses to escape wars, right? Yeah. That's where the city gets its name from. Yeah. And it's built on these canals and all the rest of it. Now, my first visit, I remember it well. I walk into St. Mark's Square. I had hair like Matthew McCona- McConaughey back in the day, right? And I've got my photo <laughs> with the pigeons eating out of my hand and stuff. And that's all cool. But then, you know, you go three or four times and then it floods and it's exciting because the water floods from underneath and you take your shoes off and roll your trousers up and off you go and, you know, so and on. So. And you do this over a period of time. But then when you've been a dozen times and then, you know, floods again and actually it's pretty dirty water. And oh God, there's a dead pigeon marinating in it. It's going to right? say something. And you, and you can't help but walk in it because the <laughs> wooden platforms they put out can't fit all the travelers, right? And then... After 14, 15 trips, oh, why is it every time I come to Venice, something gets lost or stolen? Like, I, I, and It's not a slur, it's just a reality. And if I have to go and spend my time in police stations trying to get passports replaced, oh, what a nightmare. Venice is wearing me down. <laughs> After 20 trips, why is it whenever I come to Venice, I'm having a battle with some of the local surprise. They're contracted. But if I get there right early, I'm there two minutes early. Hey, Marco, huh? fantastic to see you again. <laughs> Unfortunately, the last group, eh, they're running late. So now we're going to cut your ride short by five minutes. If I get there a minute late, hey, Marco, fantastic to see you again. Unfortunately, you were late. We were, of course, on time. We're always on time. So now we're going to have to cut your ride short by five minutes. I'm always battling to get, you know, it sounds horrendous. It's just part of lifestyle there. But after more than 20 trips, like 22 trips, I'm worn down. And I send my group off for free time. But I could just see something clicked in my brain that they were not as excited as I was when I had hair like Matthew McConaughey and pigeons on my shoulder. And they need to be because it's freaking Venice, right? Yeah. And yeah. I stopped a guy and, and he, his answer is what woke me up. He said, oh, you know what, yeah, it's cool. It's a great city. I'm sure it's fine. Like you say, though. And it was because my energy, not consciously but unconsciously, had gotten less after so many trips and being beaten down by the city. And it woke me up and I went – Damn, that's bad. I need to be as excited about Venice every time as if it's my first time because it's these people's first time and I need to give it my all. And I've taken that philosophy to everything. If I'm on a sales call at 9 a.m., 10 a.m., noon, 5, 6 p.m., 7 p.m., so what? It doesn't matter if it's 100 calls for me today. It's that person's first conversation with me. It's the first time they're getting it with me. And same at my – so why am I so present? Why do I bring my energy? Venice. It's my energy. I must choose to give my best. That's why.
1: Love it. That's well, a fun. really good analogy, and uh, one that I think is going to be very relevant to the listeners because there's a, a lot of the get invested audience that are uh, you know middle management, uh, you know career focused, time poor, and mm-hmm. uh, have, have been working in an industry for for many years, and you know there's that that sense of um, repetition that that creeps in and the uh, you feel like you're sort of going through the motions. Uh, f- yeah. For those that are in that situation, and they're they're earning really good incomes, and th- that income can help sort of be funneled into other things that are that they can invest in that are they're going to generate their wealth. But the gr- the grass always looks greener, and the 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 grass that you're currently cutting can look pretty boring and mundane. What do you mm-hmm. say to those people in terms of how 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 can they? Uh, get motivated and stay motivated both in themselves and the the people around them that they're working with. What's your thoughts around that?
0: Yeah, I've got a couple. I mean, to to tie it up nicely, which links into this, that story with Venice, is that complacency, when you work with behavior and you understand complacency is a normal, right? And that's why I actually use creativity with businesses by mixing things up. Injecting chaos is what breaks complacency. It's a strategy you use consciously. And the same is true for us as individuals. We get to know our roles so well that we shortcut or we be, you know, we kind of just take things for granted. And so I would say the first thing is like, Venice, catch yourself on your own complacencies is the first thing. Because they're not bad. Complacencies aren't bad. They're normal. We all have them. The trick is recognizing where we're becoming complacent, stagnant or stale and injecting a little bit of creativity in our own life. Now you could then take... The same message, if you're a leader or a manager and you're working with others, you can take that principle for starting with them as well. If people are stagnant, stale, use all the creative tools in your kit to help people see things in a fresh light or to keep growing. Does that make sense? So that's the first thing I would say is recognizing those complacencies. Yep. The, the second though, and you use the word then I love, and it's this word motivation and, you know, is a field I work in. I know there's people that when they hear the word, they think of the kind of candy floss surface stuff that doesn't mean anything. There, motivation is a science. The way I work with it, it certainly is. And you can break it down into three styles. There's biological. If you're hungry, you'll eat. That's if you're thirsty, you drink. That's motivation, yeah. right? Yeah. Let's leave that to one side. There's external motivation. And if you are a manager working for a business, we're all doing that because you're, you're being paid a salary for your time. That's motivation. That's a drive. That's external If you're in sales businesses, we pay commissions and remuneration or incentives. They're external motivations. And anybody who's got kids, though, would maybe understand. I don't. But if you've got kids, there's a problem with external – not problem, but the challenge with external motivation is if whatever you give this time has got to be better next. Mm. Try telling your kid you give them one lollipop to do something this time. Next time, it's better be two. right? Lollipops, right? So external motivation works. Yes, it does. However, you're left with a third layer and that's internal motivation, intrinsic motivation, because internal motivation is the fire that sets the soul alight. And that is true for yourself, if you're a leader or manager and your people. And the thing with internal motivation is it changes at different stages of life. So again, if I make it personal, my motivations and drivers as a mid-20-something working for Contiki in Europe and traveling around the world, you can imagine a very different as a 50, 51-year-old professional building a business in Australia. My motivations have changed. Yeah. They, they do. And so I think the thing there is when you can really look in a mirror and tap into your true internal motivations, that can help. And then the same for your people, not to expect or think that they all have the same drive. And a classic way to think about that in business, especially sales, uh, you know, people think people are driven by money. Well, maybe so, but it may not be their main driver. And so we've got to ask questions to identify it. And it's simple to break down. There's a model by Edward Spranger who set this framework and he he can't, you take motivation. You could ask people what motivates them. You might get a thousand answers from a thousand people, but you can put them into six categories. A bit like You ask somebody where they want to travel, they might say a thousand cities, but you can put them into continents. Same is true for motivation. So internal motivation, maybe I'm driven by utility, resources, right? Financial return, all that sort of stuff that comes under utility, but that's only one. Maybe I'm driven by knowledge, learning, continual learning. Maybe I'm driven by social. Uh, I want to make an impact to other people. I want to like work and help develop other people. Maybe I'm driven by aesthetics. I want new experiences. Maybe I'm driven by individualistic, which is devising and implementing a winning strategy. Or maybe I'm driven by traditional uh, beliefs, and that's like a value system by which I base all my decisions on. So you've got those six sort of buckets, Mm. and we may have one or two of those that are prominent at any moment in time. That's true for you as an individual. It's true for me, and it's true for the people in your team. Learn to ask better questions and really get to understand what's driving someone and talk to them in a way that helps them tap into that for themselves and reward them, change reward and recognition to align with that. Because it's not always about, hey, here's a voucher for a hundred bucks to go and spend something. Maybe that reward for that individual to help keep them motivated is by achieving these things, we'll put you on a learning course. By achieving these things, we'll give you half a day to go and spend time working with a charity that you want to support. Do you see what I mean? So you can adapt yeah. the reward, the recognition, the language, the way we speak and work with people based on what's really driving them and ourselves. That's love. just, again, it's, it's another tool or method. It's certainly part of tools I'm accredited with and it underpins some of the behavioral work I do.
1: Yeah, I love that. Uh, something that. Uh, is there anything that you can sort of uh, just, Wet the listeners' appetite with in relation to – because that self-awareness, we're very good at seeing where other people's motivations are and where they're at and what what they're doing. A lot of us aren't so good at looking in the mirror and understanding where we're at and where we fit and how that's changing. What's their best way of of really starting to self-reflect and understand where they fit and therefore, once they've understood that – what that then means in terms of what they need to be doing from there
0: yeah yeah you even said some of the words then we we say them often but i say them and mean them that is face the mirror when i when i roll out training actually around let's say productivity in a toolkit how do i become more efficient this here's a toolkit of 10 ways right and they're very simple but the 10th one is face the mirror because let's be frank You actually don't need me as an external consultant to come in and tell you where you're bleeding your time. You just need to be looking in the mirror more often and being honest with yourself (laughs) instead of putting on the bravado. And how often are you actually literally looking at yourself in a mirror and being honest? So that's the first one is not just using those words, but taking the action aligned with those words, face the mirror, take an inventory, stock take, be honest with yourself, you know, being candid with yourself being candid with other people, and inviting the same of other people. Uh, A couple of things you can do to help with that. Sometimes we may turn to people in our circle for input. And the danger with that sometimes is we're asking the same people and their friends, and they may tell us what we want to hear. Be brave to ask people that you respect who don't necessarily agree with you. And identify different masterminds for different inputs for different parts of your life. I'm not going to ask. You know, I, I wouldn't. And I've said this to you as well, Bushy. I wouldn't encourage people to come and ask me about financial wealth or investments, not my bag. You want to ask me about investing my time and energy and a resource and learning, ask me that. Yeah. But ask another specialist about what they're good at and and then make sure they're people you think are credible and will listen to, and you don't have to be best mates with them. And then be brave enough to do something with that input. So that's something as well that I would encourage. That's a way of bringing the idea of facing the mirror to life. Build a mastermind crew or group of people around you. Make it people that you're willing to listen to and make it different experts for different things and listen to the input they give you. You know, again, I relate this to a a quick story in My My first tour, at the end of the tour, I had seven or eight people give pretty much the same feedback on the feedback form. And it wasn't bad, but it was something along the lines of, Mark's a great guy, but he shows favoritism. And I wasn't. Now I could ignore that feedback. Yeah. I could ignore it. But what I did was I asked myself a question and said, okay, what am I doing that makes seven or eight people think I'm showing favoritism? And then I got it, it's behavioral sciences. It's DISC or any of those models. I was being outward going and spending time, more time on travel days, talking the outward going buggy people like myself. And I was leaving the people that were kind of internal and silent and peace because I didn't want to disrupt their peace or equilibrium. They were interpreting that favoritism. Job done. So it's that. Do you see what I mean? So it's listening to the feedback when you get it, reflecting on that feedback, ask for it, get it, reflect on it, act on it.
1: And how did that uh, – then moving forward, the learnings from it, how did that impact on how you traded treated uh, – can take your guests in the future uh, that we're a little bit more reserved?
0: Well, you know what? Perfect. Because the moment I got that, as part of – one thing you learn on your on those tours is the most important talk you actually do is your first day talk to set the scene, take control, and build the rapport of the group. And I learned to build into my first day tour. I had three rules, which my kind of starter point, which already has got everybody's attention – but then my um, my piece around that, learning from that, was, hey, it's day one. I'd learn everybody's names. I'd know their first names. I'd get them introduced myself, and then I'd tell them all their first names. You each have equal access to me in time, but you just need to ask. I have a tendency to lean in and spend time with people that are out with growing bubbly, but just ask. You'll get it. I never had that problem again.
1: Yeah, love it. It's- love it. Such a, such a simple Uh, communication that sets the expectations that then uh, puts everyone on the same page, mate. Love it.
0: That's it. it. There's the word right there. You use it in communication. You can preempt so many problems. You know, if you're a leader and you've got challenge with team, have candid conversations, preempt it. You know, there's a thing about fear and things that grow and get bigger. It grows because we don't call it out. Candor, right? A lack of candid conversation. Elephants aren't prone to small spaces. The elephant in the room is only there because people let it grow. Candor is a gift. Candor implies equality, right? And, and so have an honest, straight shooting conversations and calling out the very thing takes the fear out of it. Hence, you, you take that and put it into your communications for sure.
1: Yeah, I love that, love it. No, that's brilliant, mate. Uh, I, I've sidetracked you a fair bit there, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which was which was awesome because it uh, dovetailed beautifully into the experiences you've had with Kentucky. Let, let's talk about life after Kentiki and and how yeah. that sort of got you to where you're you currently are and what you're doing. Yeah, well, I think the
0: um, my my biggest challenge actually leaving Kentucky, funnily enough, was. I've been living like a nomad out of suitcases for so long. So blending into what we call somewhat normal life was a bit of a challenge for me. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: I, I spent a year and a half on visas between Australia and New Zealand, then finally moved to Australia with my partner at the time and then got back into the role of typical work, you know. Um, and I have to say, looking back now, I, I was quite stressful uh, time for a couple of years because you know, there's times so when I was on training tours. You're having breakfast in Budapest, lunch in Vienna, dinner in Prague. You know, when you're on tours, people are on holiday and generally having a good time. Yeah. That one facing reality, I got to go to work, pay the bills, pay the taxes. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's just big adjustment. And things,
0: yeah, and it was things like even getting my visas. Right, yeah, I had to do get police background checks for company uh, for countries I'd lived in for so long. My the paperwork <laughs> to compile to pull in my visa application was a nightmare. <laughs> but then blending in was just it was some time and and again, I think there's still times even now over 20 years later where there's remnants of that that still surface for me. And I, I don't have as much cause I love being able to travel and stuff for work, but I just, you know, I've just never blended fully into that idea of working in the nine to five sort of thing. I think that's why finding my flow and what I've done has really helped. Yep. Um, I think though, what, what I did learn was, and I think I flagged this earlier is that the experiences I had the role, first of all, I had as a training manager for Kentucky and for Travcorp in multiple ways in Europe set me up professionally. And the experiences and my observations of 10 years is what I've brought to all my programs and content. And again, if I look back, I didn't know back then that that's what was happening, but that's what's happened. Using my past experiences to kind of nurture my future and present and future. And to keep learning. And so those really, what can I take from that la- that past life and use it in my current and future? And that served me really well. And I think it's just that philosophy. I, I think this is a learning itself. It doesn't matter. Let's say you're working right now. You know, entrepreneur, you're doing a role. You're looking at you know, like the side thing or you want to do something else. Be your best for what you're doing right now because there's stuff you're learning in it. Even if you can't connect the dots or see it, you are going to take things from that. But if you switch off and chill or just kind of get a bit lapsadaisical, you may miss out. Be your best anyway with whatever you're doing. You're going to nurture and use that in your future.
1: Love it. Love it. Because everything you're doing today is an investment in your future, whether you realize it or not. It's uh, Completely. Even Even
0: the challenges, right? Even the challenges, even those, those failures, that's where you get your best learnings from sometimes is, is exactly that. And in fact, I can relate to that because when I left um, TravCorp, start working for Kentucky, one of the main reasons was I actually didn't get a gig I really wanted at the time. And I, probably, I think back then, it was probably uh, a bit of a spat at the time and it was still the right decision, I think, to leave. The time was good, but my drive at the time was I didn't quite get a gig I wanted and I left. Having said that, not getting that role has served me well. Again, I just couldn't see it at the time. Yeah. If I had taken that position, I'd gone down a different path. I wouldn't have done the things I've done. I wouldn't have maybe written the books that I've written. So the good and the bad experiences all hold some knowledge for us.
1: Love that. Let's drill into that a little bit more because I always uh, love to get your thoughts on if you you know to reflect on on the journey so far. What have been uh, the, the most and I'll put it in investment terms. What what has been your best investment to date and what's been your worst investment to date as you look back over that experience yeah. and what have you learned I, from both of those?
0: I, I can, They're very obvious, the, the answers that spring to mind. My best investment by a long shot has been investing in myself and continual development and it's something I always do. Yeah. And no matter what's going on in my life, I'm always doing that. I'm always reading, studying, doing something, expanding my own programs as well. So continual learning, continual growth. My worst investment by a long shot has been a very bad habit for life. And, and it was uh, exacerbated through my experience in Katiki with handling money, to be quite frank. You know, like I had kind of poor influences when I was um, growing up and through school. I didn't necessarily appreciate the value of that. Then you move into this lifestyle of living on the road and just living in the present moment and just kind of, and then use it and blow and, you know, you don't get paid a lot and then go and blow that all on experiences. Not any, no real plan, no real thinking about the future, you know, in that regard. And then you add to that your natural traits. Some of us and mine have been, you know, like retail therapy. I didn't have a house, so I, I, I've got this thing for nice suits. I've still got a wardrobe of nice suits. But my worst habit and my worst to do with that has been a very slow and late appreciation of actually planning fiscally. And that's why I said to you, when it comes to that, investing in, in ourselves and resources and time and learning and growth, those are my paths. When it comes to fiscal wealth, I lean in there to others, to experts, because I'm a novice, right? And I'm a late player in that field. So that's been the worst one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but here's the, here's the good news. You, 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 you've recognized that very easily. And uh, I'm sensing that if you haven't already, you're probably talking to your eldest brother again about, uh, okay, brother, what what do I need to be doing to set myself up and secure my uh, long-term future? So it's you're not like many who get to 63 or 64 and have what I call the oh shit super moment where they go, oh shit, my super's not going to be enough to do what I thought it was going to do. What the hell am I going to do now? I'm probably going to have to work for another 15 or 20 years. Yeah. Uh, you're sort of a... At a, at a vintage now mark where you've still got time on your hands and you've got the opportunity as using your own words to surround yourself with people that are better than you at, at those aspects and then getting getting their guidance to uh, get you on track.
0: Uh, absolutely and I think um, again there's a couple of things yes I've, I have spoken to my brother and other people because there's industries I work with like Pippa and professionals in investment and property and all sorts. And so I'm surrounded by some really brilliant minds in that regard and I'm very fortunate so they can help. And again, though, I think if it's realizing it's being comfortable not being hard on myself either for my past life and going, this is what I'm now doing. And I have continued to invest in my own business because those points of difference is what sets me up. I'm lucky I'm in a field where you know, you can earn well through doing what you do really well. And so it's, you know, it's not like going to the job and work where you've got to go and do it 30 years and build up that way. I can really start, as you point out for the next five to 10 years, keep it selling what I do and just be smarter with what I do with the returns on that. That's really where I'm at in life. And it's realizing that now. So that's the journey I'm now on when it comes to certainly the future. And, and I love your, the, what you talked to in that self health wealth. Like the first two pillars, right? The self, yeah, do that all the time. And the health and well-being, do that. And I think you say as well, you get the, the wealth comes when you've really got the other two in a good place. Yeah. And that's really what I'm experiencing as well. I mean, that's living proof. It's just to your point. It's a testament to those three pillars that you talk to. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, brilliant, mate. I love that. Well, let, let's jump into the future a little bit and, and paint, paint the story and the picture of what your ideal world and your ideal lifestyle does look like. And then, then talk to us around what you're investing in to either you might be there already. So, what are you investing into to make it happen and keep it happening?
0: Yeah, no, I wouldn't say I'm there already, but I am Sam on a path. I think. I think though here's what I've also learned is my future lifestyle. It's funny, yeah, I want that comfortable life, but over the years that's definitely changed. Yeah. And I consider my own lifestyle is actually quite modest. And I ain't, I see I foresee that happening and continuing. Yeah. But what I do see is by being investing in myself and having more success with my business, what that allows me to do is live a consistently comfortable, modest life but make a bigger impact and legacy on the communities in which I live and serve as well. Yeah. And I think that's what it, it, for me, I've got to that realization of, you know, I don't, I, I remember years ago, actually, in sales training, somebody was in one of my programs, and they turned around and said, oh, man, you're a genius, you're brilliant. Just one thing I don't understand, why don't you have the boat? <laughs> and I, To which, to which I, I said, what makes you think I want a boat? <laughs> that's You're describing to me what you do, was this says. Yeah, you can't tell me that's what I want to do, and that. So I'm, i kind of really got comfortable with uh, um, a lifestyle. For me, is not about the boat in a harbor or six cars in a garage or palaces everywhere. I'm comfortable with a modest life, but I do want to make a greater impact to the communities I serve, and that's the path I'm on. Is how can I make sure I'm investing in? So to your question, I continue investing in my business and acumen to make those models smarter to get greater income for my business that i can then invest better pathways myself and from talking to people in my circle i envisage that will be things around property is a big one that's going to be for that one as well my business is set up as a trust as well which kind of helps i mean again this is where you get advice from accountants and all the rest of it i take their input but what it will also do is allow me to make greater impact into aspects of community that I want to make a better impact to. And that's certainly around fields that are aligned with what I do professionally, learning, learning for children, um, learning for children in uh, remote communities, those sorts of things. Because and I've got a firm belief that, you know, if we if we can nurture our kids, we've got far better adults running around, therefore investing in You know, things like emotional intelligence with kids is a great way to start. Best time to start looking at that is not when you're 50; (laughs) it's when you're (laughs) when you're seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah. So, yep, yep. So, I think the the short answer is continue investing in my business to differentiate it. Continue investing in myself. Make sure that those are smart. What I'm doing with the returns of that are smarter, and then creating pathways to invest that to create greater wealth, not necessarily just for me, but for communities I serve.
1: And that conveniently brings us to the end of part one of Mark Carter's great chat on adding value. In the next episode, part two will dive into the importance of value to investing and Mark unpacks his definition of value and breaks down the five main elements of his value model, as well as drawing our attention to the pitfalls of adopting a Blinkist approach to the value of life. So look out for this as it reveals the secrets on how we can all add value in our lives. And before we go, if you're enjoying Get Invested, we'd love for you to leave a quick review on iTunes, Spotify, Google or whichever platform you get your podcast food from as this helps in increasing the exposure and Get Invested to other interested listeners like yourself. So I just want to thank you for that in advance. Thanks again. and I look forward to leaving you smarter and smiling again next week. To get a summary of all this investment gold in the show notes, just email me on hello at khgroup.com.au, that's H-E-L-L-O at khgroup.com.au, or check us out at www.bushymartin.com.au forward slash getinvested. I look forward to joining you next week for another episode of the Get Invested podcast. So thanks for listening, and as always, dream as if you live forever, and live as if you die